Last Sunday, as you know, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the grave. We uh, looked at several uh, events along the way that led up to that most glorious and wonderful event known as Easter Sunday, a great and glorious day in the Christian church. But we took several weeks to look at the events that led up to his resurrection and There were a number of pivotal and memorable occasions involved as we saw our Lord teaching the disciples, as we saw our Lord giving the Lord's Supper, as we considered what happened when he was in Gethsemane, and then indeed the crucifixion itself. All of these things leading up to, as we said, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. I said this to someone a few weeks ago, and it's just the way it is with me. I just don't want to just preach about the resurrection of Jesus and just kind of leave it, just be done with it. I'd like to consider it a little bit more. And so in the coming weeks, what I want for us to do is look at some of the events in the scriptures that happened following the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and prior to his ascension into heaven. I believe that there is still much more for us to learn from the risen Savior, the resurrected Jesus. More lessons recorded in the scripture, more that he did, more that he taught. And actually, I wish there was even more. You notice how talking about Jesus after the resurrection is a very small portion of the Gospels. And if you're in John, if you would, please look at John again. And we read from John chapter 20 a few moments ago that Jesus performed all kinds of signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in the book. And I wish they were. I'd like to have more. In chapter 21, he spoke about the fact that, you know, if... Jesus did so many more things that if they were written to detail, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would have to be written. Anybody know what that's called? It's an absolute term used in a relative sense. Of course the world could hold the books. It's a phrase, it's a saying. And what he's saying is, wow, we could have written so much more. I wish they had. I would love to have read more. I would like to see the second book of Acts. Because many writers believe there was, many theologians believe there was a second book of Acts. That when uh, Luke left off at the end of the Acts that we have, it seemed like he was ready to write more. And I wish we had those books. But we don't. With that said, though, we still have a number of occasions recorded in the Scriptures of Jesus meeting with his disciples after that first occasion that we talked about last week, that he met with his disciples and that he taught his disciples. And I want to look at a few of those occasions over the coming weeks. And I want to see what he taught his disciples prior to his ascension back to glory. And then I want to take a couple of weeks after that to see what he's doing even now. The ongoing work of the resurrected Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at. What he did before he ascended, and what he's doing right now 
for his church. Because there's a lot written about that. We talk about what Jesus did in his life. Well, what's he doing now? It's not like he got back to, to heaven and stopped doing anything or went to sleep. He's still working, still active. And we're going to look at some of that. But today I want to look from this book, the Gospel of John, at his appearance on the shore. That's going to be from part one, his work prior to the ascension. And today, his appearance on the shore. Look with me at chapter 21 of the Gospel of John in verse 1. After these things, that is actually after the things that John recorded in chapter 20, where he mentioned Jesus' appearing to the disciples on the day of his resurrection, and Jesus appearing one week later to Thomas. Remember, Thomas wasn't there the first week, and it's John who records from chapter 20, verse 21, Thomas was there, and Jesus said to him, Reach here your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. That was the second week, or one week after his resurrection. That was the second Sunday, if you would, of the Christian era. Now, John says, after these things, after those things, after that, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. So this is at least two weeks after he was raised, and very likely three weeks or so after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And John is the only one to record the account with Thomas, and John is the only one to record this account of our Lord Jesus at the shore or at the Sea of Tiberias. Now let me give you a little bit of a background to this. It says here that he manifested himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, what is that? Where is that? Anybody think about that? You know, you hear the Sea of Tiberias. What is the Sea of Tiberias? Well, the Sea of Tiberias is none other than the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias are the same thing. The Jews called it the Sea of Galilee because it was up by Galilee, part of it. Part of it formed the border of Galilee, so it was known predominantly as the Sea of Galilee. That was the Jewish name for the sea. However, Tiberias was the non-Jewish name for the sea. So everyone around there that was not a Jew would have mostly called it the Sea of Tiberias. It was named after the current reigning emperor Tiberius, or emperor of Rome, Tiberius. That's why the Romans would have known this sea as the Sea of Tiberius. Now look in your Bibles to John chapter 6 really quickly. Don't lose your place in John 21, but look back to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, here's what John says in verse 1. This is right before 
He feeds the 5,000. And it says that after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. You see, it's one and the same. Now back to chapter 21. John is the only one who records the name Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias. He did it there in chapter 6. He does it here in chapter 21. Why do you think that John included that in his gospel to those people to whom he was writing? Well, it is because even as we discussed this morning, the gospel of John was predominantly written to Gentiles, to non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And so as he is trying to write to the Gentiles, it was only natural for him to include the Gentile name of the sea so that they would know where he was talking about and what he was talking about. So John, as we know, the gospel predominantly to the Gentiles includes the Gentile name for the Sea of Galilee. He calls it the Sea of Tiberias. And believe it or not, in Luke, Luke also calls it, by the way, he, it is known in the Gospel of Luke as Lake Gennesaret in chapter 5 in Luke. And we're going to look there in a few minutes. But it's Lake Gennesaret in Luke's Gospel. Why was that? Well, just like Galilee was part of the border, Gennesaret, the city or the town, was kind of on the same lake, so they like to call it by the name of their town. So they called it Lake Gennesaret. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the uh, uh, sea was known as Chinnereth. That's in Numbers chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 3 and Joshua 19. It formed part of the boundaries for the land that God gave to Israel. And there in the Old Testament, it's called Chinnereth. But whatever you call it, this body of water was approximately 60 miles due north of Jerusalem. Almost due north of Jerusalem. About a 60 mile trek from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee. And here is where the disciples were. Remember, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, or outside the city walls in Jerusalem. He was buried outside the wall in Jerusalem. And the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews, most likely in Jerusalem. And Jesus appeared to them in Jerusalem, or outside of the city of Jerusalem, close to where he was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. And now they're 60 miles away. That's a pretty long way to walk. Now for us, some of you probably drive that far every day just to get to work. But in those days, it's a walk. And it was a relatively long walk. Three days journey, approximately. And that's where they were in the area of the lake or Sea of Tiberias. Now, that's just a bit of a background regarding the Sea of Tiberias. What I'd like to do now is consider Jesus' care for his church by giving leaders. Jesus' care for his church by giving and training his leaders for the church. Verse 2, we find Simon Peter... And Thomas 
called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. Who was that, kids? Who were the sons of Zebedee? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. And they went out, got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. Here we have Jesus' care for his disciples. Jesus knew that he was about to return to the Father, and he still had to teach these disciples a few lessons. And the first lesson he teaches them is how to fish. But it's not so much how to fish, as we will see, it's what to fish for. And this is the whole point of the lesson that Jesus is about to teach his disciples. They were the ones that Jesus was with for approximately three years. He knows he's not going to be around to hold their hand anymore. They're going to have to act like men. They're going to have to be the leaders of their church. So Jesus has to come and to teach them and to show them what they're supposed to do instead of what they were doing, which was what? Fishing. The leaders of the church had gone fishing. They were out on the lake. They were out fishing. And the problem is, They were fishing in the physical sense rather than fishing in the spiritual sense. The physical sense being that they were fishing for fish. The spiritual sense is they should have been fishing for men. But they were fishing in the physical sense. They went back to doing what they knew and Peter, the leader, led the way. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But Peter led the way. I'm going to go fishing. And they said, we're going to go with you. It's what they were doing before they met Jesus. It's what they were doing before Jesus called them to come and follow me. So they went back to doing what they had been doing. You know, people, oftentimes, that's not a very good idea. Because oftentimes, What you're doing prior to meeting the living God is sin. And going back to sin is not a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that's what they were. Fishing is not a sin. Fishing is not a sin. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is sometimes going back to what you were doing before you met Jesus is not a good idea. For myself, I was in radio. Not a good idea to go back to radio. Bad people, bad commercials, inconsistent with the Christian lifestyle. Sometimes you have to leave what you were doing and do something new. And this is what Jesus is going to teach them here. Here he is. He comes to them for three years. He taught them to be fishers of men, and now they're back fishing for fish. So the head of the church gives them another fishing lesson. Verse 4. The day was now breaking. Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So he said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. We'll look at the rest of this in a moment. But here he calls them children. Pideon, the Greek word. It means little 
children. It's not the usual term used in the scriptures for the children of God. It's a very endearing term, a very affectionate term. Little children. It's what you might say to your little child. Children. My little, my little ones. Now why would he be saying that? Because they were acting like little children. They were acting like little children. They had lost their nerve and were hiding. Jesus comes and appears to them. They are still hiding. Jesus comes and appears to them. Now they run away. They leave Jerusalem and they're up in Galilee and they go back to fishing. Jesus goes, my little children, listen to me. And so he uses the term children. These were indeed his dear children. And let me say before I go on, any of you young ones here, any of you little ones, Jesus calls all of his saved ones his dear children. To you, just like to your mom and dad, you're a dear child. When you're saved, when you embrace Christ as your Savior, you become to him like little children. He's, he's the head of the house, and he calls you his children. That's why we say we're the children of God. We're of the family of God. And so Jesus called them his children. And then he asks in verse 5, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, why do you think he asked them that? You think he wanted to buy some fish? Wow, I need some fish. Jesus just wanted to buy some of their fish. No, that's not why he was there. He wasn't there to buy fish. He's reminding them of their duty. And in other words, what he's saying to them is, you don't have any converts, do you? You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do you have any converts here on the lake? They didn't have any fish or any converts. Jesus is reminding them they had labored all night and they had caught nothing. So he instructs them in verse 6, cast your net on the right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. Now this sounds very familiar. Look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, look down to verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Remember, it's the same lake, Lake of Galilee, Tiberias. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began to teach the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And what does Simon say? Lord, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. I don't want to go out again. It's hard work. It's not the kind of fishing that Doug or Daniel does. This is hard work. Fishing for a living. 
And they said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw what was happening, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This amazing miracle, don't miss it. Both the boats were filled with fish. What do you think happened to those fish? You ever think about that? You think they just left them in the boats and rotted? They sold them. And the money that they gained from selling all of those fish went to provide for their families while they went away and did the work with Jesus. Remember that we, we, when we read about James and John, often called the sons of Zebedee, in the Gospel of Matthew, he speaks about leaving the nets and the boats and their father. Their father was left with the fish and he sold the fish. So Jesus provided for their families to go and follow him. It's Jesus' way of saying, don't worry, I'm God, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And yet how many of us constantly are oftentimes at least get hung up in worrying about whether God is going to take care of us. And indeed, sometimes we even go through trials and wonder if God is going to take care of us, only to find on the other side that He has. In very miraculous ways sometimes, cares for His people. Now you go back to John 21. And what happens here in John 21 was very much the same thing. Remember, in Luke 5, they left their nets and their boats and they followed Jesus. Now, they're back fishing again. And what does Jesus do? Well, we read in the text. So they cast, this is verse 6, the end. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Same thing. Many, many fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Remember, they didn't know who it was. But Jesus told them to do the same thing he had told them almost three years ago with the same results. And they realize it's Jesus. It's our Lord. It is our Savior. And so what happens? Peter heard that it was the Lord and he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards away dragging the net 
full of fish. They dragged that net filled with all of those fish because Jesus supernaturally provided for them. But in the working of that miracle, He is reminding them of what He already did for them and said, don't worry, I will take care of your needs. Follow me. And they did. And here again, don't worry, I will take care of you. Do the work you are now called to do. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your families. I'll take care of your needs. It's nothing for God to fill your boat with fish. God can do it. He can take care of you. You need to do what He's called you to do. Now, some of you, like these disciples, they had walked with Jesus for three years. They should have known what they were supposed to be doing. And some of you have been in church for many years. And you know what you're supposed to be doing. In a few weeks, we're going to see what he said at the uh, end of the Gospel of Matthew in the Great Commission, just before he's ascended into heaven. Go! Make disciples! You know what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be fishers of men. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be. And he's telling Peter... And the other men, you're not supposed to be out on the lake fishing. Go fish for men. Jesus is preparing these men to be leaders of his church. And in so doing, he is giving his church leaders who are not only prepared to do what they're supposed to do, but who knew what they were supposed to do and how to do it. And so in the text, in verse 6, the hall is so great, the number of fish was amazing. This is our Lord's supernatural provision for them as they are about to set off as leaders of the church. And they recognize Him. They recognize Him now as the risen Lord. If you would, look down at verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question Him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. I find that an interesting way for John to write that. That no one dared to even, or did even ask Him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. It is a statement. It is a statement that John is making. That every single one of them realized that here is the risen Lord. Now remember what he says in verse 1. That this is how he manifested himself. He manifested himself in this way. And here they are, down in verse 12, recognizing and realizing who he is. They realized that here is the risen Lord. 
This is part of his ongoing work training them. But I also want us to see from this text Jesus' care for his church by caring for his leaders. He cared for them by providing them with the fish. But let's go beyond that. I want to remind you of what happened in verse 3. I said I'd get back to it. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing, fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out. Peter led them in the wrong direction. Peter is the one who led them back to fishing for fish, rather as the leader of the church to lead them to fishing for men. He was then the leader, the man who had the personality the man who had the gumption, and we'll see that in the book of Acts probably next week. He was the leader of the church. And so he was the one that was to lead them to do the things that they were supposed to do. And here he's leading them to do the things that they should not have done. Why was that? Why do you think that was? I just have to say that I can understand perhaps some of what Peter was going through. You have to remember his denial of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was his mentor, he said he loved Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He loved Jesus, and Jesus was his Savior, his Lord. But Peter was humbled. Peter was really taken down, and he lost a lot of confidence. And so perhaps it is, that at this time in his life, he didn't believe that he was worthy to be a leader of the church. Lost a lot of his confidence, a lot of his bravado, and maybe he didn't feel worthy to be a Christian leader. And I say this again, and I'm not going to use the same phrase, but you'll know what I'm saying. We all sin. All men sin. Even the best men sin. And even the best Christian men can be discouraged. Now, Wednesday night, we had a little men's retreat, a little men's group. And I talked to the men about things regarding what happens sometimes in the lives of men. And part of it was just like this, discouragement. We looked at the Psalms and we, we discussed a little bit about the fact that it is the Lord that lifts us up out of the pit. It is the Lord that strengthens us. It is the Lord that encourages us. We are all, even the best of us, sinners, and we are all prone to discouragement. And I know what some of you are going through. And you're, you're not alone. I mean, I, I look at Sean, I know what's going on with Alan, and I know that sometimes men get discouraged and a little bit upset that, why is this happening? Why this testing? I know that one of our brothers is going through this in a real way. Man, when I first started coming to your church, I was driving a BMW. Now I'm in a Hyundai. We're all tested, tried, 
And Peter was going through it. It was only a couple of weeks ago. And he denied that he even knew Jesus with cursing. And so here's Peter, discouraged. But I want to say this. Peter was not automatically thrown aside by Jesus because of his sin. You've got to remember that this was a grievous sin. He denied he even knew Jesus publicly. Publicly. Not just a little sin here and there. And really when we sin, we all deny Jesus in some way. But he denied it publicly, outwardly. Grievous sin. But Jesus didn't just throw him off. No more for you. You failed. You can't be a leader in the church. He wasn't automatically thrown to the side. And I am reminded of the fact, a statement that I heard years ago, and I, and I, I can't but help but think that in some ways it's true. The Christian church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Because it's like the Christian church, when somebody sins or falls, we're never willing to extend to them the same forgiveness that we would to an unbeliever. Don't get me wrong. I don't think guys like Jim Baker were saved to begin with. I'm not talking about him. But I'm talking about real Christians. Real men. One comes to mind recently. Famous Christian leader who lost his wife, who lost his daughter. And he fell into a sin and it, it just seemed like he was instantly shot by the rest of the Christian church. And I don't like it. I don't think it's right. We all sin. People, I am a sinner. In case you didn't know that. I am. Don't shoot me, please. But that's what the church seems to do. Not Jesus. He didn't do that to Peter. Instead, what we find him, he corrects him. Yes, he does need to correct him. But he did not kick him out. He restored him. So look at verse 15. So when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. First of all, notice that he said when they finished breakfast. What does that tell you? They finished. They ate together. They broke bread together. Jesus ate. Jesus in his resurrected body ate food. That's, that's encouraging because I like to eat food. I don't like to eat fish so much, but I'm hoping there's a steak tree in heaven. So they ate. But what I, what I really want to say about that is it's not like Jesus was just sitting there going, Right away. You know, Peter, you know what you did? And he just right away got in Peter's face and corrected him for what he did. He didn't do that. They had breakfast together, which means they likely talked. And there was camaraderie. And then following breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you 
loved me. Now, why did he do that? Yes, it's because Peter denied him three times. But look at what he says in verse 15. Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Why would he say that? I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And if you would please look down to verse 30. This is following the Lord's Supper, the uh, uh, initiation or the Last Supper, the initiation of the Lord's Supper. Verse 30, And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Remember, he's the shepherd. That's from our lesson in Sunday school today. He is the shepherd. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What's he saying? You know, this James and John, these characters, they may fall away. Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, they may fall away. But I love you more than they do. I really love you. I will never fall away. Now, John 21. Did he fall away? He sure did. Worse than any of them. Worse than any of them. And that's why Jesus says, Do you love me more than these? That was not so much a question as a statement. So you think you love me more than these, huh? You thought you were such hot stuff. You thought that, oh, they'll leave you, but I never would. But you did. Big time. Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Jesus asks him three times, and indeed that is because he denied him three times. You think you love me so much? You think you love me more than these? Can you imagine the grief and the embarrassment that Peter had to feel? So I said before, the discouragement, the grief, the embarrassment. And so he says to Jesus three times, Lord, I love you. Verse 15, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him in verse 16, Yes, Lord, you know that I loved you. He says to him in verse 17, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And that's true. Jesus does know all things. And Jesus did know that Peter loved him. That's why he's doing this. He didn't just cast him aside. He's restoring him. He's healing him. He's comforting him. He's teaching him. But three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, 
you know that I love you. Now, I know that we usually look at this text and see Jesus restoring Peter. And that's what he's doing. However, look at it this way. Here is an opportunity that Peter never thought he would get. Because Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And Peter never had an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. I do love you. Here's that opportunity. Peter had a wonderful opportunity after falling into sin to tell Jesus, I love you. Because he rose from the dead. Because he is the risen Lord. Peter had this great chance, this great opportunity to say to him, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Let me say this. It's all I'm going to get to do today. You have that opportunity too. Because our Savior is alive, when you sin, you can go to Him and say, Father, I'm sorry. I've blown it again. Forgive me for my sin. What a great opportunity. And that's because he rose from the dead. What a great opportunity is ours to be able to go to the risen Savior and say, I am sorry, Father. I have failed you. You know that I truly do love you. Oh, please increase my faith. Please increase my walk. Please help me to love you more. You can do that because Jesus is the risen Savior. Some of you here today, You have a great opportunity because Jesus is alive and the risen Savior to go to him the first time and say to him, Oh God, I am sorry for my sins. Please forgive me and save me. Save me, oh God, from my sin. Forgive me for my sin. Help me. Make me your child and help me. To live for you. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the fact that he rose from the dead makes it all possible. Go to him today. Tell him you love him. Go to him today. Ask him for forgiveness and to save you. Let's pray.